Hello and welcome to the Guernsey Press Sport Podcast, your weekly roundup of the best action and biggest talking points in bailiwick sport. Uh, coming up today, we'll look back at the Sark to Jersey, the main event in Channel Island rowing, and the first proper in-person interinsular we've seen for many a month. A good day for Guernsey, it was too. We'll also preview the ever-popular Trident Trust All-Terrain Challenge, looking back at where it all started. It gets underway on Sunday, uh, and we'll bring you our highlights of the week and look ahead to what else is happening over the next seven days or so. Uh, I'm Tony Kerr. Uh, alongside me this week, got Rob Batiste. Hi. Gareth DePrevo. Hi, Tony. And Jamie Ingrill. Hello. Uh, good to see you guys. Uh, we'll come on to our picks of the week in a moment. But first, Rob, um, let's talk football because uh, a fairly big story off the field that has been developing uh, I don't know, over the course of the last week uh, related to Manza, Chris Tardiff and a, a fairly heavy sanction. Yeah, it's not every day... Um the island manager gets a two-year ban from all involvement in club football. Um, one of your clubs gets a nine-point deduction that was suspended for two years, admittedly, and a £600 fine instantly put on them. Um, I'm a bit bemused about the whole situation, to be honest. Um, it's crazy, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not doubting um, or not coming on either side about whether people were guilty or innocent in this, but... Um, I, I just don't like the way it's been handled, from what I hear. Um, I think the fines are, and penalties are worked far, far too heavy. And um, I'm, as I say, I'm not sure the way the whole thing has been handled um, is good for football at all. And uh, I think this one may well run for a while. Um, and um, I'd like to have, there's a lot of questions I want answering for sure. Do we know what the, the offences were? Um, from what I gather, they were basically are tapping up players. But um, I must admit, um, on this front, I think there is a lack of clarity, um, proven clarity about when the transfer window was open. Um, that became clear to me towards the end of the season in my discussions with people about when people could start making approaches and, and move for moves. Um, that wasn't answered satisfactorily as far as I was concerned. So I'm not surprised there was some sort of some blurred, blurred sort of lines on that as far as man's are concerned. Um, but the, what I'm hearing is, 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 is very strange. You know, you've got a quick case where, you know, man's have been basically saying you can appeal, but they don't know what they're appealing against. They haven't yet been told what they're supposedly guilty of, which to me sounds absolutely nuts. So, um, as I say, it's very disappointing. Um, you know, I'm, as I say, I'm not going to ju- make any judgments about whether Chris Tardiff should be doing, um, is guilty or not on this. But I think um, it's been very poorly handled so far. And putting aside any appeals then that follow, as things stand at the moment, will Chris Tardiff be allowed to, to continue in his role as Guernsey manager? I couldn't see that happening, no. I mean, from what I gather, the case is, um, you know, he, against him is that, you know, he is he was basically suggesting possibly that um you know if you come play manza you know you, you'll do your your island chances good whether that's right i'm not i'm i'm not i haven't seen the evidence but um it it's um i no i can't see the gfa being very happy uh, about that at all so i wouldn't suspect that chris um will be continuing as island manager whatever the outcome uh, which is a great shame 
Great show and an extraordinary situation given obviously that, you know, he's been, because of the COVID situation, we've obviously missed out on a couple of Marathis and Island Games to look forward to in a couple of years too. So I guess that, that throws into the air all of those plans. And what about for Manza? Because they've obviously had a very difficult uh, time of it off the pitch. Um, you know, they've been, all the, all the negotiations about where they're going to play, you know, how they're going to get players in. Um, presumably this is going to leave a very bitter taste. Yeah, um, I th- unfortunately we are in a situation in Guernsey football. I think there are a number of clubs who would happily see the back of Manza today, um, and unfortunately that prevailing attitude I don't think is very clever. Um, I think Manza have got their own way of going about things, which are in my mind perfectly legitimate. If they want to offer players f- football for free they should be entitled to do so. That is their business model. Um, but um, as I say, um, and I know that sticks in the throat of a lot of clubs. They don't like the idea of a club playing in the Premier League, which doesn't have any juniors, for example. Um, and they feel that, you know, Mans are in a situation where um, they just pounce on um, players who have been developed from other clubs. That is the situation it is, you know, that... That man's are allowed to come into that, and I think um, for net for clubs now to start moaning about the um, man's position in the Premier League is um, not very great, very good at all. Yeah, and just finally, obviously, it's not very long until the start of the new season, is it? I mean, we're, we're basically uh, well, a month away from the Premier League starting again. Of course, the Rawlinson will be a couple of weeks before that. Um, yeah, h- how long do you expect this to? to take to, to kind of iron out and, and work out A, what's happening and B, what's going to happen going forward? Well, who knows? I mean, I just, um, I've just got a sneaky suspicion on this one. It's going to be a runner. Something's going to, it's going to carry on for a long time. And I've got a feeling um, perhaps Chris Tardiff may not be the only casualty, casualty with this. I've just got a feeling it's going to um, get a bit messy. Could there be some other clubs sort of getting a bit hot under the collar because they've done similar things, Robert? That's the thing. I mean, what constitutes tapping up, <laughs> really? This is, you know, this is what's really uh, annoys me. I mean, tapping up has gone on forever and a day. Inducements have been there forever and a day. We can go back into the 1920s and 1930s. It was a well-known thing. You know, money being put in boots and that sort of stuff. Jobs given to people, etc., etc. It's gone on and... On for, for decades and it will always go on I've got no problem with that you've got to be um, I think mature about the whole situation that you know this is amateur football if people want to play football or cricket or whatever you um, for a club they shouldn't fully entitled to and whether they're persuaded by a conversation by somebody they work with um, somebody they sit in the pub with you know etc etc um, it doesn't make any difference I think you know you this business of tapping up players and and and, and penalising people for it, I think, is a bit bananas, really. Well, it's going to be an interesting one to watch as it as it develops over the next uh, next few weeks and months. I'm sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hot topic, very hot topic. Well, let's get some picks of the week now. Uh, on, you know, on a more positive front, um, Gareth, let's come to you first. What's caught your eye this week? I don't know. It's a positive front because I'm about to drop my sports editor so right in it as well. Um, but and he's uh, guilty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely guilty. Yeah, we we have got a case to answer, I think, in this one. But at least we're um, 
at least we're open to learning a new lesson every day still. Um, it was quite, I, I found it quite humorous this week when Rob took a phone call um, from, uh, <laughs> from a, a show jumping competitor who basically said, um, unfortunately, you, you've sort of misunderstood what happened at the weekend. We, we've learned that there's a new, well, I don't know if it's a new class, but I'd never heard of an optimum time class. And obviously, I don't think Rob had either. <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, so we, uh, uh, Rob's report stated quite clearly that uh, one rider was quicker than another in clearing their, their jump or fences, what have you. Um, but that actually wasn't what they were trying to do, which, um, and I'd never heard of an optimum time, but they were trying to hit as close as they could to completing a course in a certain time. So pace actually didn't really matter. And we found out about that. And to be fair, poor Rob <laughs> bore the brunt of it. And I was left chuckling on the other side of the desk at the time. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't me because I, I would have probably made the same mistakes. I'd, I'd never, I've been to many a show jumping event. I've never seen an optimum time class personally. So that was a new one on me. <laughs> Anything to say in your defense, Rob? Um, <laughs> it, if, if, the two final classes had gone ahead, um, but they were postponed because of the slippery conditions. I may well have hung around long enough, to, <laughs> long enough to see the presentation of the um, the trophy and rosettes, etc. And I would have thought, mm, that's strange. Why didn't the winner get the trophy? And I, I'm, but um, no, as it happened, I thought when I knew that the action was up, I quickly left um, Le Bordage and was blissfully unaware that this. This unusual way of um, finishing a competition existed, uh, but no, we do learn. We do learn. <laughs> yeah, just to make amends, though, on the, my other sort of highlight of the week, I think, was actually being. Um, I was at a, a charity golf event for enough last Friday, but it was great to be sat round a table that evening, and, and people, without my prompting for sure, were actually bringing up the the Cricket One Hundred uh, series that Rob and John Mountford have put together. Um, and there was a lot of people I know from sort of cricket backgrounds there and, and they just really enjoy seeing that series develop and reading about old names from the past and, you know, stoking old memories and um, certainly some of the names that have been cropping up recently have stoked memories for me. Certainly, I mean, um, I think in today's paper we've got uh, Justin Furbrush who just, I haven't seen Justin personally for a few years now it seems, but um, uh, just some of the memories it brought back of how he used to keep wicket um, he was just an outstanding wicketkeeper, and as Rob put in his piece, just a natural wicketkeeper. It was um, just to see someone of that ability without basically ever really being coached. Um, it's just great to just mem memories like that are just wonderful to relive. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I'm really enjoying the way it's being laid out in the paper as well. I know slightly um, your hand has been forced. We, we don't have access to photos or close-up photos of, of players, you know, going back for, for many years like we do with, you know, perhaps on the football side and, and particularly like we do now um, with the fantastic shots um, that, that, you know, the modern photographers get. Um, but it's meant that, that each of the players have a, a sort of a scorecard alongside them where they've, they've excelled, put in a, a um, you know, a supreme individual performance that kind of encapsulates their their contribution but it's, it's amazing actually and again yeah I've been um, uh, a few people have, have spoken to me about it and said it's you know just the memories that just looking at a scorecard can elicit just a few numbers on a on a piece of paper that was that was printed 40 years ago and, reminding and, and it all people, comes back and reminding people oh he played for him them I've forgotten about that you know and oh he opened the batting on all that sort of stuff you know yeah. it yeah it is um it does bring back a lot of memories and um hopefully it brings back a lot of enjoyment for a lot of people who followed the game for 
for many, many decades. The series continues. Rob, we'll come uh, back to you in a minute for your highlight. Uh, Jamie, though, uh, what have you seen this week that's that stood out? Um, what impressed me most was we had quite a, we had a splendid win from 16-year-old Thierry Le in his first Olympic distance triathlon. This was down at Racane last weekend. Um, so he, yeah, as I say, 16, but he ran a very mature race, really, against a more established competitor in Dave Mosley. Um, Thierry started with an excellent swim. Dave brought it back pretty much completely with an amazing bike. And it was sort of even Stevens going on to a run. And it looked a bit ominous for Thierry, considering he's inexperienced. He hasn't raced fair distance before. It's a long 10k round off. Uh, Dave was right on him. They sort of stayed together pretty much for a whole race. And you're thinking, maybe Dave might get it. But then as it drew on, you're thinking, hang on, Thierry's quite young. He might have a real turn of pace. And the end he did. Pulled away in the last mile, picked 26 seconds out of him. A youngster who's kind of been on the shoulder, I guess, of, of these top guys for, for a little while and, and, and waiting for his moment to, uh, to kind of be able to take them on sort of head on in these proper distances. Very much so. And it's just nice to see a race which was genuinely so competitive between two people. I think we had James Travers, who had done the Sark to Jersey the day before. He's been dominating his triathlon events for a while, but his absence just really opened it up. Yeah, cool. Um, well, well, you mentioned the Sark to Jersey. More on that in a second. Rob, though, have you got a highlight this week? Yeah. Yeah, it has to be really um, going back to cricket and the continuing excellence or success of Griffins um, under Tom Kirk. I've seen him twice in the Evening League in the last week. Um, two games where they looked pretty much nailed on to lose deep into the um, into the closing stages, and yet both times they managed to pull it out of the hat. Incredible performance. So they really. The, the real strength of Griffins is the fact that they've got this great team spirit and they do not let it go. Um, and they they are being rewarded for that, which is great. Um, things are going their way, f- sure. They get a bit of, you know, a few bits of luck. I mean, the finish against Cobo was absolutely remarkable, that last over where, you you know, where it looked they were, with five balls to go, they still needed nine and then were basically handed on the plate by... Um, Jamie Nussbaumer, of all people, Paul Jamie's his um, radar that night was all over the shop, you know, and um, bowled a waist-high full toss, which was called no ball, and it was a free hit, and then it was wide. So one ball in the end cost them eight runs, which is an absolutely amazing thing. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in local cricket at all. And it brought me back, um, took me back 40 years probably, to when... Jamie's father, in slightly different circumstances, managed to cost Cobo a point in an absolutely bizarre fashion. Um, I may have been captain that night when I was cursing him, but bless him, old David. Um, we were playing Tektronics, got to a situation where Tektronics needed four off the last ball to tie the match, and we thought we were home and dry. Managed to put all the field out on the fielders out on the boundary. Tektronics guy clipped the ball off his of his legs towards basically where the square leg umpire was. David being out on the boundary, hairs in full speed, picks the ball up by the umpire, by which time they're getting close to coming through for two. Hold on to the ball, David. Hold on to the ball. We're all telling him, yeah, hold on to the ball. Hairs in, gets to win about <laughs> five metres of Graham Marker, our wicketkeeper, and then decides to throw the stumps down to attempt to run out. Two extras, two extra, <laughs> match, two extra match tie. 
<laughs> one of those unbelievable finishes I've seen. But in those days, Cobra, we always managed to find crazy ways of throwing games away. But I've never... The two Nussbaumers have been responsible for the most remarkable finishes I've seen in even league cricket. And, and while we're talking about um, Nussbaumers, I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, wish off good friend David, if he is, gets to listen to this, who's away, um, have some treatment at the moment. You know, he's much loved in um, Guernsey sport and certainly in Guernsey cricket, and I know everybody misses him, and we wish him well. Yeah, seconded. Now, while the developing situation in Jersey with COVID and travel restrictions around vaccines at the moment, um, certainly some of the the big entrances we're looking forward to seeing later on in the summer uh, might be facing some muddy waters. We wait to see. But at least one entrance has gone ahead this summer, uh, albeit without the party at the end, which, let's face it, uh, can be as important as what happens in the contest. Uh, That's the Sark to Jersey, the highlight of any year in CI rowing. Um, It was a slightly diminished field uh, that took to the water at the weekend seven Guernsey boats facing up to 17 from Jersey uh, but quite remarkably the uh, the Guernsey crews took it uh, landing the Le Pedvin Interinsular Trophy in actually fairly convincing fashion in the end uh, scoreline wise uh, well me and Jamie have been speaking to the captain of Guernsey Rowing Club Sam DeCuca and I started off by asking him just how good it was to see the Sark to Jersey return. Yeah, so unfortunately, I, I wasn't personally taking part because I'm injured. But um, from what I've heard from all the crews, uh, conditions are pretty good. Um, the tide wasn't um, ideal and the wind direction for things like records. But in general, the conditions are pretty, uh, pretty good for the race. Um, I think everyone was just really grateful that we could have a, a Sarts jersey this year. Um, it was cancelled last year. Um, it was a little bit touch and go this year as well. So to actually get it done, um, entry numbers were lower than normal, but that, you know that's to be expected given the restrictions and stuff like that. But I think just having it back in the calendar is great. And then next year, hopefully we get a much bigger entry from both islands. You guys uh, managed to win the Le Pedvin Trophy, which is the the kind of the, the collective sort of interinsular trophy that's uh, you know up for grabs on the day. And, and given the numbers, um, yeah, how much of a surprise was that? Uh, quite a big surprise. I, I kind of looked at the entry list beforehand. Um, I thought it would be close. My kind of prediction was maybe for a draw. Um, but there were some performances, um, some great performances by some of the Guernsey crews that actually got us those extra points. And then we eventually won 7-3, which was, um, yeah, unexpected, but fantastic result. Yeah, and put that into context for us then, because given the restrictions in terms of yeah, landing in Jersey, um, you know, that that had put off a few people, I think, from from entering. So really, the Guernsey crews were quite heavily outnumbered, weren't they? Massively. I think we, there's only 25 entries in total, but just seven of those were from Guernsey this year. Um, it wasn't, you know, anyone's fault and it definitely wasn't Jersey's fault. But given the restrictions, we weren't, Guernsey crews weren't able to land in Jersey, which doesn't sound like a, too big a deal. But when you consider that the Guernsey crews have to tow to Sark, then hang around on the boat in Dekar, obviously do a massively hard race. And then to try and navigate from a floating rowing boat onto a guard boat and go straight back to Guernsey, it's a long time at sea. And I think um, a lot of crews, unfortunately, were put off by that. But the ones that did it, you know, performed brilliantly and above what we were expecting, I guess. So it was, um, yeah, some great results there. Obviously, looking at the receipts of the Edvin Trophy, um, so we were down on numbers. Nevertheless, we had some very committed crews combining and getting us that result, 7-3, which is quite emphatic. I just want you to explain to the listeners who may not be familiar with the Edvin Trophy how it works and how Guernsey's victory was calculated. 
so, some people find the scoring complicated. I think it's, it's a fairly simple process. Um, basically, the idea of the scoring is it's to be a bit kind of a level playing field. So, for example, if there were 10 entries in a class from Jersey and only two entries from Guernsey in that class, the available points are based off the lowest number. So in that case, there would only be two points available, which would be two points for the winner and one for second. Um, and then that balances out. So we only had, for example, in the men's doubles, we only had two entries, whereas Jersey had three or four. So that means that there were only two points available in that class. And those two points for the winner went to TPA from Guernsey and the one point with the second place boat was from Jersey. Um, I think where we probably scored more points this year was in the ladies doubles. So we, I think we'd always expected Le Mans Saint to win. But um, there was a fantastic performance by Ravenscross, who came second. And because there were only two entries from Guernsey, that, mean that we, means that we took all the points in that class. So there was two points for Le Monsant and one point for the Ravenscross crew. And therefore, given the Jersey crews of third and fourth, they didn't score any points. Yeah, it may be tricky, but if possible, I would like you to highlight some of the crews who you think really shone and like rose to the occasion. Like, if there are any standout performers, for example... Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the TPA crew of Simon Johns and James Coughlin, who were our top men's double, um, they were hoping for the win and they emphatically won the race and were only a minute behind the winning men's quad from Jersey. Le Mans Saint, you know, we expected them to win. Uh, I think if the, if the tide had been slightly better, they would have got that record and I'm sure they'll be gunning for it next year. And they've, they've gone from strength to strength this year. And I think that experience of rowing in that, that lineup and that crew this year will only benefit them next year when hopefully there's even bigger entries. But my, my personal performance of the day came from Boat 16, which is uh, Mark Isabel and Danny Barnett. So they were novices for the last couple of years and they've jumped into the mixed doubles class for the first time, which from outsiders, it may not seem that big a difference, but going from a quad boat where you've got a Cox, you've got a more stable boat into a doubles, which is lost, uh, a lot less stable, plus you've got to steer yourself. Um, they went into the race just hoping to complete it and in the end they won their class in a very impressive time so I think yeah the performance of the day from me definitely goes to them and I think they've picked up that point so there's only one point available in that class and they took it which has kind of really helped to, us to win the Lepedlin Trophy. Brilliant stuff and um, yeah I mean clearly the start to Jersey is the the showpiece of the season so you know great to get it on even if you know if it was slightly um, undermined by the situation um, but it sounds like it was a yeah, great deal around and, and it's back to Sark this weekend. It is yes we've got the Sark weekend so we've got the Guernsey to Sark on the Saturday and then we're going to run well attempt to run the around Sark which hasn't happened since about the mid-90s um, so that should be quite interesting. Uh, we had the Herm weekend recently, which there's a lot of tide and there's probably even more around Sark. So it could be some um, exciting racing and uh, yeah, something we haven't done for a long period of time. So it's great to get that into the calendar. That's quite an interesting one, potentially having our first around Sark since the 90s. Um, if it were to go ahead, do you think we could see many records broken? Uh, I think we'll see records in every class because there aren't any records. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> The last time the race was competed, um, crews are still rowing fixed seat boats. So it's, it's, it's that long since we've rowed it. So there, there will be records <laughs> for whoever does it. 
<laughs> and there's still a few fixtures left um, before the end of the season. Uh, just to, you know, at this stage of, of the piece, uh, how, how do you reflect on, on the summer so far for the Guernsey crews and, and the Guernsey club as a whole? I think we've, we've been lucky in some respects with the weather. We've had a f- um, quite a few races that have happened. We've had a few that have been cancelled, but the standard has been high again. And especially when you look at our kind of our top crews in each class, the men's doubles is a really big class. Uh, the ladies' quads, you know, the standard is being pushed on by a monster there. But also having those kind of new rowers coming into the club as well. And um, yeah, the club the club is looking in um, good health. And I think we've got some exciting things coming up in the pipeline going forwards with things like youth policies. And so the club is in a really good position. Uh, the season's gone well, but I'm really hopeful that going forwards we're going to become an even bigger club and an even healthier club with more competition and more people involved. Welcome back to the Guernsey Press Sport Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, do make sure to hit follow or subscribe on your podcast platform of choice to get every episode delivered straight to you. Uh, Now, the All-Terrain Challenge kicks off on Sunday, the 25th time it's been staged. Uh, Seven events in seven days uh, taking in some of the island's most challenging cliff paths and everything else that we can throw at runners here in Guernsey. And the sun has arrived just in time, which I'm sure uh, they'll all be thrilled about this year. Uh, Paul Ingrall was one of the founding organisers of the event, and I'm delighted to say uh, he's with us now. Uh, Welcome to the pod, Ingi. Hello. Ingi, as I say, the 25th ATC then uh, this coming week, uh, as popular as ever it seems. What, What makes it such an appealing event, do you think, to this day? I think the Athletic Club does a pretty good job of managing to mix relatively sort of elite type races with something for participation type runners without dumbing down the elite side of it. So it's, 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 uh, I think what's really been the winner is the, and this was from pretty much the very first time it was staged, is splitting runners into divisions according to ability. So right from the start, runners have got a little group of competitors that they're racing against and they can forget the people right at the front if they're way ahead of them and uh, and focus on the competition within their, their specific division. Uh, that division being broadly by standard. So you might have uh, some veteran runners, some, some some newcomers and some some of the women runners maybe, some newcomer men runners and et cetera, all in one division. So they're all in it together and getting through the week together is the, is the, is the challenge. I was going to say, I imagine that really spurs them on as uh, sort of digging deep into the sort of fifth, sixth, seventh event. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I can, I, I'm sort of viewing this almost through the eyes of my wife who took part for the first time last year. She's going to take part again. And uh, she loved it. You know, she was, oh, I wonder if I can beat so-and-so today. You know, it was, uh, it was like, like the, uh, she got really into the competitive side. Getting through the week is, was, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it really is a case of getting through it. I mean, it is quite a, um, a strain on the body, uh, particularly if you're not a top athlete. I mean, it does... It, the nature of the event is is really really enjoyable but having said that you know you do get exhausted by the end of the week i can always remember a, a, a time i think it was the last occasion i did it i was down in division four or five and i was saying to my mate nick loveridge oh i'm looking forward to her and we'll have a great night we'll have a great night after the game we'll, after after the run we'll go into the mermaid have a few pints have a great evening that day on the Friday, I remember coming to work barely able to keep my eyes open. I was so exhausted. Can't wait for the for the whole thing to finish. Got over, got over to home, did the race, got into the mermaid, 
and basically sopped on a pint of cold lager and basically the two of us said, when is the boat coming? <laughs> <laughs> we were so tired. Poor it, performance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really eight stages, isn't it, in seven yes, days? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, take us back to then, the, the, you know, the sort of genesis of the event uh, when it started. What, what was the idea and where, where did you get the inspiration from? Well, the inspiration sort of came, a couple of sort of factors uh, of the 90s, actually. The, there was a, a number of uh, running events in the UK. That I think there was the Northumberland Castles race. There was some... Uh, which was sort of seven races in seven days. There was, I think there was some Sun Life week-long event, which was similar format. It's 10 miles and a half marathon every every, uh, every day. That And that was pitched at the real elite end. Uh, the likes of Paul Evans, who was our top marathon runner at the time, was, was the winner of that. I, th- I think, um, and then sort of come the mid-90s, uh, um, Myself, Marcel Leclerc, both took part in the um, the mountain bike uh, tour of Guernsey, and uh, sort of afterwards said, "Yeah, it'd be quite easy to do a sort of running version of this." So a year later, and Jeff King was involved by then. I think the, the idea started. And actually, although we're saying seven races in seven days, wow, that's a the actual individual races only add up to a marathon. So in terms of total distance, it's uh, well, that's what the idea of the first one was anyway. Um, uh, in terms of total distance, it's not, not the distance that gets you, it's the, it's, the, it's the nightly race. And there will be certain events. I mean, one, one year, and I don't think this will ever happen again, they had a series of sprint races. And I think about 5% of the athletes uh, tore hamstrings. <laughs> so, so that was that. And, uh, um, but... Uh, um, it is the cumulative effect of the uh, of, of race after race, and I think people like to get through the week together. The um, the start, the aim was to get 26 miles total distance over seven days using a mix of terrains, uh, distances. I think the longest distance then, and uh, and it and and it stayed into this day. It was is the car loop, uh, which is the car cross country loop of about five miles that sort of loops broadly inland on the what I call the upper cliff pass as far as the Vallon on Jerberg Road down down Jerberg Road hit the cliffs again at Petit Paul and then the outer lower cliff pass from Petit Paul back to Ecar again uh, which features a couple of really stiff climbs on the way back and that's almost become a really popular run in its own right but it was only ever first run as part of the uh, part of the all terrain challenge I thought I was going to die last time I did that one on those steps <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're just so at the end of that five mile it really is a punishing finish set of steps i filmed a bit of it last year and just i can still see the look on the mason brothers faces as they got to the top of there and you know they're like you know they've got i've got a few pounds on them around the way i'd be like dragging myself up there i think two things i'd like to ask you was um a which which um particular leg of the series do you think has been the most effective most popular over the years I think the most popular one, I think I think they did a survey one year because people anecdotally say, oh, I really like that, I really like that. But actually the one that is the most popular is, is, the, is the e-car loop. Um, it's the longest event normally of the, um, of, of, of the event. Um, and uh, um, it stayed there. Um, the, the format has changed, uh, although the, I, I think the, the distance might not be 26 miles every year now, whereas on the first year it was categorically. Uh, I think events have drifted in and drifted out. I think it's true to say still that every, every year has been different than the previous year. 
So they and and it sort of gradually sort of morphed over time to have an expected series of races, uh, which uh, but the expected series of races now isn't the same as twenty four years ago. Um, I think the other mo- the other very popular one I think from point of view of uh, spectator wise is actually the short uh, uh, hill climb from Telegraph Bay up to Cherbourg uh, Point car park. Um, and, and that, I, I, I think runners have got their own preferences, whether they prefer running up a, a, a hill that's just uh, like a hill, a road hill or a Val type hill, or a, I think we've been up Saints, uh, Saints uh, Road Hill a couple of times, sort of running up from the, the kiosk at the bottom up to the sort of Barbary Hotel area. Um, but the, the Telegraph Bay to Zürburg has got something about it because you can stand in the car park and you can see this this group of runners and they go off in a time trial format one every, uh, it used to be one every minute I think it might be down to one every 30 seconds now but one every minute and it's almost having been at that event and they go to the Tour de France style sort of uh, slowest to fastest having been at that event and, and you're sort of uh, down there nervously waiting as one runner by one goes up the hill and, and you're, you're sat on a rock at the bottom of the sometimes you can't actually see the top you can only hear the spectators roaring each athlete up and you're thinking god it's my turn soon it's my turn soon you're down to in my case once i was down to the last two or three athletes and i was absolutely petrified (laughs) (laughs) it's very handy there's some undergrowth in the middle of that where actually basically you can hide for a, a short spell and get down your knees and 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 yeah I think the spectators can see the top from the top they can obviously see they see the last sort of uh, 100 metres or so of the runners and they see, they see the first 100 but like Rob alludes to I think in the middle the runners disappear for a little bit behind this sort of undergrowth yeah, I mean, it, yeah it does seem to attract um, uh, you know competitors from, from kind of across Guernsey sport as well from other sports I know uh, Guernsey football star Ross Allen is taking part next week. Is he? Yeah, he is. I didn't uh, know that. He's been doing a lot of cliff running. Uh, Dom Yeoman's been a regular. Oh, Dom Yeoman was yeah. really good. I mean, yeah. and of uh, course and we've had um, Jim Elliott, rugby star, for many years. He's done it numerous times. Yeah, I think some of the hockey contingent have done it from time to time as well. I think it fits with with certain sports and and certain, uh, I, I suppose, and and uh, every respect for the sportsmen that do it like this, they treat it as a bit of a, a out of season training, fitness training. And and it fits certain sports really well. Actually, uh, last year it was it was Tanya Schultz of the uh, of the rugby ladies, who's I think was the captain of the the Guernsey ladies r- r- rugby team. I think she did it last year, and I understand she's doing it again this year. And uh, but she she was great last year. She was a real real party girl. <laughs> We've had multiple winners over twenty five years, but are there one or two athletes you would consider as being the all terrain kings? The guy you know, being ideally suited to the whole series. Yeah, I, 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 I think... And you can't I, mention I, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think uh, Steve Dawes um, would have to be the... Because I think if you accumulated his times that he did when he won it round about to would have been 2009 2010 if you applied those times and said right okay we're gonna have an all-time list he would have been the outright winner he, he he's uh, he he would be the 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 best ed mason comes very near he's won it the last couple of years uh, he would have won any any of the events i, I think obviously the marcel leclerc has won it uh, a couple of times uh he's uh 
his his performances were always good and 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 Francis Ko who won the very first one uh, posted some very fast times over some tough courses but I think Francis only did the first second and third ones he won the first one he, he didn't win the the next couple and uh, and we haven't seen him since unfortunately but I, I think those are the names I'd, I'd put down and and they were all like you know at the time they were uh, the, those runners were amongst our, uh, our, our 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 top athletes Nick Dapre would be in there but uh, Nick uh, um, oddly enough he's, he's thought of as a strong cliff path right? he's really great up the steps but uh, some of his other performances probably you know certainly at his best against the likes of Steve Dawes and, and Marcel Leclerc at their best you'd, there's a pecking order that starts to develop I think and among the ladies all our best ladies have done it I think and have done really well Louise Perio, um, Sarah Mercier uh, Martine uh, Martine Scholes have, have all done very well and had I, it's difficult to, to say because I think their skills are a bit more varied and and uh, I, uh, their uh, performances were all very good and, and I'd, I wouldn't like to be as clear in the pecking order between them though. Yeah. Certain certain events over the over the years are sort of stuck in my own memory including the the famous year when we did had the the devil and the devil takes iron most um any specific nights and quirky incidents which sort of stick in your memory? Yeah, well, first to explain, I mean, for the uninitiated, I'm not sure whether they go, uh, it's always rumoured that it's going to return, but the devil take the hind, hindmost, you start, it, it's sort of based on the uh, the cycle event, really. You start with, say, 10 athletes in your division and uh, you're on a succession of laps and the last athlete across the line at the end of each lap is eliminated. Um the quirk with running was what we wanted to do was ensure that you just didn't have somebody, a Steve Dawes type, that would just run off the front and, and would basically seal the race quite early on That uh, because he could just... Man. So what we put in there, we put a pacemaker in to slow the pace down and you're only allowed to overtake the pacemaker in the last 200 metres um, or 150 metres, I think it was, uh, and sprint for the line. So essentially it was a succession of sprints with a 250 metre jog on a running track uh, between each sprint. And uh, I think the uh, it, it, it's really exciting to watch. I think it's really exciting to the athletes because for, for a lot of them, it is pure focus. Even in that, even in the interim 250 metre jog where you're behind the uh, the pacemaker, you're, you're sort of watching the other athletes, you're getting your position, you're, you're timing your run. Um, I, know, I know Rob uh, won... Uh, the division you were in uh, one year, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of fun. Yeah, but yeah, one year though, we made the mistake of uh, of introducing a bit of pantomime to it as well, and we actually had running out in the last fifty meters was uh, was. Uh, uh, um, Chris Tostevin Hall, I think it was, dressed up in a devil costume. <laughs> and, uh, and he had his devil spike and he was going to spike the last runner across the uh, uh, a line. And that was their elimination. But what turned, started out as a bit of fun actually went a little bit pear-shaped because uh, two runners were sort of coming up. They were the last two runners. And with about 10 metres to go to the actual finish line, the devil spiked. Uh, the runner that was at the back at the time but was running quicker than the penultimate runner and actually overtook him on the um, 
before they got to the line and there was a bit of an argument over but the, was the devil was the devil an official or not that's what it came <laughs> down to did his spiking of that runner cause the runner that was in front of him to slow him down thinking the decision had been made sadly it caused a little bit of contro- controversy but uh, it was it was almost a real initially in fun Ingi, thanks very much for coming in and uh, talking to us about this uh, quite special event, really, in the summer calendar. Uh, the Trident Trust All-Terrain Challenge gets underway on Sunday, as we've been saying, seven uh, stages in seven days. And you can follow the progress of all the runners, I think, throughout the week uh, in the pages of the Guernsey Press, of course. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. OK, thank you, Tom. Well, we wish uh, yeah, everyone taking on the All-Terrain Challenge uh, the very best of luck over the next week. It's supposed to get quite hot at the weekend. Yeah, it's going to be pretty stifling on those cliffs. I think yeah. a few heads will be spinning as they reach the top of Mullin Wet Steps and out of breath and exhausted after five miles of hard running. Making me sweat just thinking about it. I'm looking forward to standing at the top of those steps and seeing those people struggling for their breath. Oh, well, I'm sure it's going to be a, a great event. As we say, yeah, all the best to those uh, taking it on. Um, let's have a look at what else is going on this weekend then. Uh, Jamie, uh, a big weekend of hill climbing in two quite different disciplines. Yes, so uh, 17th of July is a date that has been in the motorsport calendar for a while, uh, namely because it's the National Hill Climb. Initially, that was the plan. We found out earlier this year that we would not have a national due to COVID. However, the Guernsey Motorcycling Car Club are honouring tradition by still running their runoffs, which would normally take place at the end of a nationals competition. It's just going to be a nice showcase for local competitors, basically who's been the fastest throughout the day. But in order to open up, they've actually, they're doing it as top six motorcycles, top six cars, it would normally probably just be 12 cars and also throwing a couple carters in there. So, yeah, interesting showdown to conclude the day. Oh, it's good to see them taking advantage, I guess, of the, the situation to, to offer something a little bit different. Um, as you say, it would be the, the, you know, the big weekend, wouldn't it, in the local calendar? Uh, and I'm sure they'll be, they'll be pleased to see the sun out and the, the warm temperatures forecast. I think Nick Saunders must be rubbing his hands at the weather forecast, thinking with you know, those nice warm, nice warm tarmac Perhaps he might well get another PB and get down towards, was he sub-28? He has gone sub-28 uh, quite recently, actually, and he or is continuing good ramp of improvement. <laughs> Obviously, sub-27 would be right in the territory of the record, being 26.99 currently. But yeah, I know as an intermediate goal, he's got his eyes on just Goodyear's class record. That's another promising competitor who's come over from the UK. So, yeah, wishing best of luck. Could fall this weekend. We shall, uh, yeah, watch with interest. Uh, Gareth, you're going to be out there soaking up the sun on the golf course. I will be. I'll be at uh, Le Grand Mar next weekend. change from the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. I've been been going out in my waterproof. I'm going to actually break out my new sun hat, I think, this weekend. (laughs) Looking forward to that. Um, Yeah, we've got the Senior Men's um, Ireland Championship uh, knockout stages going on. We've got the semi-finals on Saturday. Um, Bobby Ego, the defending champion, takes on Neil Tangi, who's a newcomer to the age group. Um, and big Nigel Vodin will be up against uh, home player Andy Boyd in the other semi-final. Um, I mean, seedings would suggest Bobby and Nigel will be back for a rematch of uh, the last final um, on Sunday, but um, you never know. Andy Boyd is um, very capable around his home track. And uh, Neil's a very consistent player as well, so it could be interesting either way. I won't be there, but Langcrest also have a special tournament going on 
Um, it, it was for their 125th anniversary year, which was um, it was last year, but unfortunately because of the COVID situation, they weren't able to host this tournament. But they're doing a special event which um, sees players draw um, a player from the British Open, whoever makes it through to the cut, and they have the British Open players uh, score added to theirs on the day. So it'd be quite interesting to see how um, a handicapper of about 25 added to perhaps John Rahm or someone <laughs> um, gets on. So um, I'm interested to see how that one it's works out. It's a very out. unique way of deciding a golf competition. <laughs> it I is. Like it's it. been, it's a bit of fun. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah they're actually um, all meeting. Well, uh, all the players um, entered into the Landcrest competition are invited to their clubhouse on Friday night to draw a uh, one of the pros who makes the cut at the Open, so it could be very interesting. Yeah, so they'll be walking around, uh, yeah. yeah, playing playing their rounds with their watching on their phones <laughs> yeah. as well to see how their partners. Exactly, going on. yeah. Skygo could be um, doubled up on uh, Lancres on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, ah, sounds like good fun. Uh, Rob, you're not going to be anywhere this weekend. You're going to be. I'm going to be. I'm planning through top 100, doing a bit of research. I need to get ahead of that with some holidays coming up, um, and it's. Um, it's, yes, in some cases, it's not easy to find some information about some of these old players. So I shall be digging through the, our, our, our files here Saturday afternoon and, and seeing who we can come up with. Yeah, good stuff. Well, thanks very much, guys. Uh, enjoy your weekends, whatever you're doing. Thanks uh, for everyone at home for listening. Um, we'll be back next Thursday with another Guernsey Press Sport podcast for now. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, Tony. Bye-bye.